You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Morning, my friends. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. These are the true words of the living God. Hello. Just give me a minute. I think the stand is too low. Yeah, I think Trent didn't make it high enough. Um, so this is the, uh, my, my name is Eugene, and uh, I'm one of the uh, uh, lay elders, our elders in the church, and um, I'm very happy to welcome all of you to this, uh, uh, I guess, time sermon, right? And uh, I have saved up this opening line for, for this sermon, and it's very, very important. You see, I was reflecting on why I had to preach this morning, and I got it. The reason is because Perch was at the Taylor Swift concert last night. <laughs> that is the reason why I had to preach this morning. It's a brilliant opening night, right? Yeah, okay. So, anyway, um, let's get to the sermon. Um, <laughs> have you ever felt that you were not qualified for a new role? Have you ever felt this way? I remember when I became a team leader at work in a new role, that first day in my new role, 
my team leaders, my team members look to me to make decisions for the team in areas of work where, frankly, I think they had more knowledge about the subject matter than me. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. I felt like they might discover any time how unqualified I was. Even after a couple of years in this role, I marvel still at how much I still don't know about the work I do every day. And I wonder when someone will pull me to the side and say, there was a mistake in HR and I'll need to leave as I'm not actually qualified to do this job. Now, it's kind of scary and funny to think about this happening to you at work, but when I became a Christian back in my university days, that's how I felt. There was reading your Bible, praying to Jesus, going to church, and then there was this whole other culture aspect, you know, ways of talking with people at church, words that people use when they pray, like, like justification, sanctification, exhortation. You know, other people around me all seemed to have it all worked out, except me. I really didn't know what I was going on. In my heart, I knew I was a Christian, but I sure didn't feel like I knew how to be a Christian. Right? I just didn't feel qualified to be a Christian. Now, the Philippians are in a similar situation. They are a young church facing external opposition from the city of Philippi and internal tensions from various factions in the church. And this is all new to them. Right? They, they need counsel to face the external opposition and navigate the internal tensions so that they don't fracture as a church. They are in dire straits. Right? And so Paul writes to them. Right? And, and there's a lot that goes through from chapter 1, verse 27, until we get to this passage. So I was mulling on how best to, to do it. And um, I'm going to sort of take a step away from the script and just try this out. So I, I've been trying to memorize the, the book of Philippians and I've gotten up to about chapter 2, verse 14. I'm not going to memorize it for you here, but I want you to just listen to the flow of it, right? So in chapter 1, verse 27, after Paul has recounted all his, where he is in prison, he then says to the church, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? So that's where he sets it. He goes on, and then in chapter 2, he picks up and says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right? So there's the call to unity as part of the call to live a life worthy of the gospel. And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 12, to then says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Right? So that's the flow of the passage. Right? And so this passage that we come to this morning has has three things that, that Paul wants to emphasize to us. He reminds us that God has given us a, a new identity through the gospel, that we are called to live out this new identity together, right? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, based on God's promise to work out this new identity in our lives, so that we point to Jesus in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so the sermon today has, has three parts, right? Uh, there's one command to obey, that's chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. There are three things to do, right? That's set out in verses 14 to 18. And then two examples to imitate. 
So let's turn to the first point, and we'll just take our time to walk through verse 12. Right? So verse 12 goes with, therefore, my beloved. Right? And notice the word at the start, right? It's therefore. Right? Um, now, the word therefore, uh, next slide, I suppose. Uh, so keep that, if you have your Bibles open, keep your hand on that verse. But you know, what is the word therefore, therefore? It links to the passage before, to the example of Christ. Right? In chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, Christ humbled himself. That was the example that Paul put before the church to say this is why we need to be, or this is how we want to be united with Christ. And Christ humbled himself. He obeyed the Father. He, he obeyed the Father even to the point of death. Christ placed our interests before his and obeyed God the Father to die for our sins. Right? In, he, in Matthew, it says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so because Christ has saved us from sin and united us with Him by His death on the cross, so now we are to obey Him. That's the word, therefore, therefore. Next, he says in, the, the next two words is, my beloved, right? It's an obedience born of love. Paul calls the Philippians, my beloved. This is the same word that God used at Jesus' baptism. Right? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Philippians are reminded that they are beloved of God. This command to work out your salvation is not an obedience to earn God's love. It is an obedience born of love. I think that's really important. Next, it is also a long obedience in the same direction. Right? That's why Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. Working out your own salvation happens day by day in faithful obedience. It's an obedience that trusts in Jesus' faithfulness, whether we see the sun or the clouds hide the sun, right? Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Finally, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, we come now to the command. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a weighty command. We are called to work out our own salvation. What does it mean? Let's first be clear what it cannot mean. Right? It cannot mean that we are to obey God in order to get merit and earn our salvation. Why? No, it's very clear. The verse doesn't say work for your own salvation. It says work out your own salvation. So that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of like grammar, right? But... In the context, really, if you look at the context, Paul is writing to fellow believers, people who are already saved. He calls them saints in Christ Jesus. That's well, one, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, he calls them partners in the gospel, right? He thanks them for their partnership in the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. He calls them partakers of grace with him, chapter 1, verse 7. He calls them his brothers in chapter 1, verse 12. So Paul cannot, say, cannot be meaning to say these people are not yet saved. They are saved. But here is the command to work out your own salvation. Not work for, but work out. Instead, the word salvation is used to emphasize that selfish ambition, conceit, rivalry within the church are dead serious matters and need to be dealt with. Selfish ambition and conceit can lead to factions and disunity tearing the church apart. And if the church is torn apart, 
these believers in Philippi will be left without a community of grace. Paul says, this is serious. Work out your unity in Christ together as a community. Don't be divided. And we fight this unity by working out this salvation together. Right? The command is given to the church to live out the gospel. So I want to emphasize, this is not a pursuit of unity for unity's sake, but a pursuit of holiness that will result in unity. Right? This means we, we live out the identity that we have been saved into together. We take what has been given to us in Christ, right, this seed of the new life given to us by grace, and we live out this new life. And it might feel strange at first, but don't give up. It will become more natural. As we serve one another in humility, as we pursue intimacy with Jesus, as we pray and read the Bible together, as we confess our sins to one another as, as Christ, as, uh, as Trent, not Christ, as Trent led us earlier, right, fighting sin in our lives together, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, forgiving one another, all these will become more and more natural. Why? Why does all this become more and more natural? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Fruitfulness is guaranteed. Victory is assured. Where in Philippians have we read that God works? I draw your attention to chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul said, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So fruitfulness is guaranteed. Victory is assured. If you had to place bets, this is one bet you definitely want to put your money on. You're going to win. So we work out our salvation because it is God who works in us. We work because God works. Even what I will and what I work is guaranteed by God. And so we can be confident of working out this salvation. More than that, we'll be confident that this fruitfulness of this work of fruitfulness will be completed because God says He will complete this good work that He has started in His church. Then you see the words fear and trembling. God calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does this fear and trembling mean? So let's be clear what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that we should be working from a place of fear, afraid that if we don't work hard enough, we're going to lose our salvation. Right? That, that, that will, cannot be what Paul means because he has said it is God who works in us. And in chapter 1, verse 6, he said that God will complete the work that he has started in us. So fear and trembling means having a reverent attitude to God as we work out our salvation. And I have the word story down there, so I'll try to give you a story. This is a sort of, sort of true story, but there's a bit of imagination to it, right? So first of all, true fact, I can cook, right? I can cook. Don't laugh, I can cook, right? I cooked for myself during my university days. And when I got to know Kay many years later, I decided to cook her a meal. I only did it once, right? She told me this morning she was very grateful for the thought and effort. Right? I, I thought it was okay, but she never asked me to do it again. Now, we are now married, and now I know that Kay can really cook, right? My cooking is a pale, pale imitation of what cooking even means, right? Now, imagine one day Kay calls me to the kitchen, and she says, we are preparing dinner for some very special guest. In the, in the sort of um, uh, mood of the moment, you're probably thinking of Taylor Swift. I was thinking of John Piper, but never mind. And she says, Eugene, you don't have to chop the garlic. I just want you to cook the dish for the guests. I'll be right beside you. 
how do you think I'll be cooking? I will be cooking with fear and trembling. Not because I am scared, but because I want to get this right. I want to honour her and our guests. But I can feel safe because she's a good cook. Right? And that's the kind of attitude we have. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, yes, there is a sense of, oh wow, this is really important. But I know that God has got my back. So Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13 is a command to the church to live out this new life that we've been given in Christ with a reverent heart. We're called as a community to help one another obey this command from an obedience born of love. And we are guaranteed that there'll be fruitfulness because it is God who works in us, both to will and to work. Will it be easy? No. Will it feel natural? It will feel unnatural at the start. It will feel difficult at times. We will fall down. It is okay if it feels effortful. That's what working out means, right? It's work. But you work from a place of victory, from a place of rest, because Christ is risen. So that's the command to obey. Turn with me now to look at verses 14 to 18, right? There are three things to do under this command to run well with Jesus. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. What are the three things to do so that we can be blameless and innocent children of God? Well, don't grumble, don't dispute, hold fast to the word of life. Don't grumble. That's really tough. The Singaporean in me is very convicted by this because Singaporeans are famous for grumbling, famous for complaining. But to be honest, this is not a uniquely Singaporean trait. The Jews did it back in the day, right? Remember when God delivered the Jews from slavery in Egypt and led them through the Red, uh, through the Red Sea, right? He's leading them into the promised land. And there, after they had witnessed God parting the Red Sea for them, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they say, ah, would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Right? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? The Jews were not grateful to God for His grace. Their grumbling showed a spirit of unbelief towards God. That God is not good, not faithful, and not mighty to save. On the surface, we think grumbling is not a big deal, but grumbling is serious. Right? If you, have, if you have your Bibles, you can also see 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9-11. to I'm not saying it is serious because I say it's serious. The Bible tells me it is serious. It says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And 1 Corinthians even tells us that these things happened to them as an example written down for our instruction. So we are testing God's patience when we grumble and there are serious consequences to grumbling. Those Jews who grumble, every one of them from 20 years and up, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, did not make it to the promised land. And those below 20 wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So if you catch yourself grumbling, turn to God, confess and repent. Don't ignore it. Don't downplay it. Don't harden your heart and say it doesn't matter. Instead, can I invite you to go to God with the doubts, the suffering that you have 
and your requests and entrust yourself into God's hands. The Psalms are filled with songs and poetry of people of God who cried to God in their suffering. So you can cry to God. God is not saying you have to push down these emotions, but don't grumble about God. Right? Later on in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, Paul will say the same thing. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, bring your, bring your requests, your, your, your prayers to God with thanksgiving. Right? It's the same idea to entrust these things to God. Don't dispute. Right? In, in Scripture, dispute often refers to conflicts or disagreements between men. Right? So, does do all things without disputing mean that we have to do everything that everyone tells us to do? That, that isn't what Paul means. Right? How do I know this? Remember we said chapter 1 verse 27, right? Paul encouraged them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by their opponents. So they had opponents. There were people who were in conflict with them in the city of Philippi. And Paul said, you stand firm in the gospel. So there is godly conflict, right? You can say, this is where I stand and I'm not moving. Right? But what he's saying here in the larger context is what he's referring to in the first half of chapter 2, right? Where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is talking here about letting our interactions with one another in the church be governed by the mind of Christ, be seasoned with his spirit of gentleness. Right? So we stand firm on the truth, but that's how we, we interact with one another, trying to serve one another's interests and not just our own interests. Finally, hold fast to the word of life. What is this word of life? It is the gospel. I, I've sort of tried to put it out here, uh, using my own words, but from various parts of Scripture. But it is the Gospel. It is the good news that Jesus Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to, but emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man, humbled Himself completely, obeyed God, died on the cross for our sins, so that whoever believed in Him would be justified by His perfect obedience, would not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of life that we are to hold to. Paul holds fast to this word of life. Look with me at uh, verses 16 to 18. It says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. Paul's, the foundation of Paul's joy in the midst of suffering is this gospel. It is Jesus' faithfulness as seen in the gospel to him. Right, so that in the day of Christ, he says, I may be proud that I, I, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We all need this gospel. Many people, even Christians, think the gospel is the doorway to the Christian life. After we are saved, we now need to work hard to live out this Christian life with just a little help from the gospel now and then. Earlier, Trent was leading us through confession. He said that we all tend to think highly of ourselves. Right? We, we, want to, we think we deserve better. This is grossly mistaken. We have far too high an estimate of our ability if we think that after we are saved, we just need to work out this gospel with our own strength and then a little help from the gospel now and then. No, 
holding fast to the word of life means that we only live out the Christian life when we are fully looking to the God of the gospel, standing on the foundation of the gospel that Christ has established. Only in this way, with God working in us, both to will and to work, can we work out our salvation. Right? To those of us here today who are exploring Christianity, I invite you to accept this invitation of Jesus Christ and believe in this gospel. Because you can only get rid of sin by coming to Jesus. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, then you have not been saved from sin. And if you have not been saved from sin, then your fight against sin is a fight that you will lose because sin is much bigger than we are. Right? So without Jesus Christ, you are working for your salvation and you are doomed to fail. But in Jesus Christ, you are working out your salvation and victory is guaranteed because Christ is risen. So my call to you, Grace Community, is to live out this life of unity in community, helping one another love God more and more every day. Right? Increasing in knowledge of Jesus every day so that you can discern and approve what is excellent and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit that comes from being in right relationship with God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right, so hold fast to the word of life and hold each other fast to the word of life. The church is God's grace and rich provision for us as a community. Be anchored to this community. Don't, don't drift. Right? Come to church for service regularly, even when it's tough. Let the community hold on to you when you cannot hold on. Be part of the church. Don't uh, sneak in and out. You know, some of us say, I just come for service. Right? But God does not save sinners to just attend church service. God saves sinners into the church. Right? So that's the first half of the second half of chapter 2. Then Paul then spends the next 12 verses telling the church that he hopes to send Timothy to them soon and that he has sent Epaphroditus back with the letter to them first. Right? So these are the two examples. And Paul writes about Timothy and Epaphroditus because he's commending them as examples for the church in Philippi to follow as they follow Christ. We need examples. Right? Being a Christian is intrinsically relational. Right? We follow Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We have a relationship with Him. We, we don't have a set of propositions, uh, but we follow a person, right? And so seeing a person allows us to see how they apply God's Word to their life and so learn from their example. It's like uh, learning to swim or climb or play badminton. Have you ever tried to learn these things from a textbook? It's really tough. But when someone stands before you and says, look at how I surf, you get it, right? So you, you, you cannot just learn from instructions alone. You need instructions and examples. And that's what Paul is doing. He's giving them two examples to follow. So let's look at the first guy, Timothy. Paul is so concerned that the Philippians run well that he sends Timothy to encourage them and be an example to them. Right? Timothy is to go to Philippi and then return to Paul that Paul may be cheered by news of them. Paul, uh, sorry, not Paul. Timothy is Paul's trusted emissary and representative. Look at how Paul describes Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know 
Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. You know Timothy's proven worth. Timothy is well known to the Philippians. He served with Paul as a son with a father. He was with Paul when Paul planted this church in Philippi. He was in the prison with Paul in Philippi. He is genuinely concerned for their welfare. He seeks the interests of Jesus Christ, not his own interests. Right. See the echoes here with chapter 2, verse 4. Right? He seeks not only his own interests, but the interests of others. Right. So just to do a, a bit of compare and contrast, Jesus obeyed his Father and sought our interests, not his. Jesus laid down his life for us. Timothy obeys Paul, his father in the faith, and seeks the interests of Jesus, the welfare of the church in Philippi, and not his own interests. Jesus humbles himself to serve us, died to save us, trusting in God, and God raised him from the dead and exalted him. Timothy, who follows after Jesus' example, humbles himself to serve the Philippians, trusting that in Christ, God will raise him up from death into life. Paul is sending Timothy to encourage the church in Philippi and to report back. But Timothy is really placed before that church and say, follow Timothy as he follows Paul, as he follows Christ. That's Timothy. Now we turn to Epaphroditus. Paul wants to encourage the Philippians that they too have a model of godly discipleship in their midst. Who is Epaphroditus? He is the fellow who holds the letter that Paul is writing here that we are looking at and brings that letter to the church in Philippi. Right? And look at how Epaphroditus is identified. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And let's see that. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. Don't miss this word, fellow. Paul is saying, I'm just a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. I am just like one of you. I am your brother in Christ. This is Epaphroditus. Remember how Paul starts this letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He doesn't even say that he's an apostle, right? And Paul sounds this note again, that if we are to be Timothys and Epaphroditus, we must be fellow workers, soldiers, family. We shouldn't lord it over others, but always in humility to call others more significant than ourselves. Look with me at this verse again. Paul is also acknowledging the partnership that the Philippian church has with him. Who is Epaphroditus? He's also their messenger, their minister to his need. Paul wants the church to know that their partnership with him is valued. Right? Epaphroditus has been sent by the church to bring news of the church to Paul, right? to minister to Paul's needs and to go back to that church. He brought gifts and support right, to Paul. Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul acknowledges that he has received those gifts and in his mission from Philippi to where Paul was in prison to bring them news, Epaphroditus fell sick. He fell ill. In verse 27, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. Right, so Epaphroditus had reached Paul. He was ill. He had to recuperate. And the church is wondering what has happened to him, what has happened to their messenger. And I, I really like this verse. Epaphroditus is... He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. My way of thinking about it is, Epaphroditus is worried that they are worried. Right? He, he is, 
He's concerned because they are concerned. And Paul says, I am therefore eager to send him back to you that you may rejoice at seeing him again. Paul decides, let's send this guy back. He can carry this letter. Paul does this for the joy of the Philippians, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. He would rather send Epaphroditus back to them so that they can rejoice instead of keeping him with him here to minister for his needs. Not only that, Paul is also prepared to send Timothy away, right, leaving himself without two of his closest brothers. And he commands the church to receive this man in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples to the church and they are also examples to us. Everything that we've talked about, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, do all things without grumbling and disputing, we see it here in these two men. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ, they obeyed Jesus without grumbling or disputing. They held fast to the word of life. They lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. And their lives help us to see what this looks like. So, we started this sermon talking about how would the Philippine church stand firm against external opposition and address rivalry in their midst. The answer is by following the example of these men, resolving to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, working out, their salvation with fear and trembling. Like the Philippians, we are a young church. We are a diverse community. We also live in a counter-gospel culture that opposes Christ. And like them, we too will have to stand firm against external opposition. Like them, we too will have to address tensions in the community from time to time. To think that we will never have to face these tensions is to think too highly of sinners in need of sanctification, right? How will we do this? By resolving today and every day to hold fast to the word of life together. Stand on the cornerstone together. Help one another fight sin and work out this promise of salvation together with, faith, with fear and trembling, knowing and trusting that God will complete this good work that He has started in us. At the start of the sermon, I, I shared a story of feeling like I didn't feel qualified to be a Christian. The truth is, I was never qualified to be a Christian. None of us are. It is God who qualifies us. We are all saved by His grace. He gives us this new identity as a child of God through no merit of our own. And then He gives us everything we need to live out this new identity. His Word, his Holy Spirit, and this church. And He then calls us to work out our salvation together. Right? God invites us to work out this salvation. And I thought about it this, further this morning. It's like, it's like God invites us to paint a section of this huge painting that He's painting. And we're like, God, really? Do you want me to paint this part of the painting? And God says, yeah, go ahead and paint it. And one day, in heaven, by God's grace, we will step back and we will see this small section of the painting that we painted and it will look so good, so perfect, right? And we will say, I, I painted this, but God, you were the one who really painted this, right? So hold fast to the word of life. Don't grumble, don't dispute. Let's run this race together looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Okay, Grace Community, that's it. Let's go to God in prayer.
Father, we, we thank you for your word to us this morning, this grand invitation to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. Let's not rush, let's take a few moments to reflect. Is there a specific area of life that God is calling you to work out your salvation in? Have you been grumbling to God? Are you in dispute with someone here in the church? If you are, if there's an area, bring it to God. Speak to Him. Lay it on Him. Ask Him for His help. He is faithful. He is committed to work out the salvation in your life. And He works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Dear Father in Heaven, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for all of us. We are a young church. We are a new church. But even if we are an old church, we will never stray far from our need for this gospel. This gospel is the start and the end of our faith. Help us, O oh God, to obey your command, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because you work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Help us, O oh God, that we would pursue holiness and do all things without grumbling and disputing always holding fast to the word of life, this gospel, that we might truly be your children, blameless and innocent, shining as lights in the world amid a crooked and twisted generation. Help us to extend to one another the grace that you have extended to us first. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.